You're listening to Welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here to finally finish discussing our December 2022, January 2023 book club pick, um, Babel or The Necessity of Violence in Arcane History of the Oxford Translators Revolution by R.F. Kuang. And man, Rira, I feel like, yeah, yeah, we were discussing this before we started recording, but Maybe we should have um, ended our first half with book three instead of book two because so much, so, so much happens. So much. <laughs> yeah, like uh, before we started recording, I was trying to remember where we left off. I was like, what was the end of book two? Because at the start of book three, a lot of things happen. And I was just like, I don't want to spoil <laughs> anything <laughs> but uh, or repeat myself. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was like when you reach book three, everything kind of picks up and you're kind of on a speeding train and you're just kind of holding on and trying not to fall off. A lot of things happen. Things kick off with um, a lot of drama. So Yeah. In true Arv Kwong fashion, um, the shit really hits the fan once you get to the midpoint of this book. And uh, I mean, listeners won't I mean, listeners won't know because like we edited it. But when we talked about book one and two, we talked for like two hours. (laughs) So if we had added book three to it, it would have been a lot. So maybe it's a good idea that we we are starting from book three. Yeah. I mean, book three through five are also way more action packed. So uh, it's definitely there's. It just felt like once this book started going, uh, it just did not stop. And it just kept hurting and hurting us, which at this point, we should have known. It's an RF Kwong book. This is what she likes to do. Yeah, but I think uh, since we have a lot of ground to cover, uh, we can just get started. And again, we're going to be spoiling the hell out of this book because uh, it's the second half. So if you have not read Babel, please... uh, go and read it and then come back because this is one of those books where i really strongly implore you to read before listening to the episode yeah um we were, i'm so excited to be chatting with you now that we've both finished the book because whew, it's a lot to go through so we start with book three which covers the third year of Oxford for our cohort um leading up to their fourth year trip um where some shit goes down. Yeah, let's start from um, where we ended in book two. So in book two, the end of book two uh, is Robin quitting the Ermi Society and saying goodbye to Griffin, his half-brother, after, you know, Robin gets shot during uh, one of the, um, I guess, I guess like one of the heists. And he's like, nope, I thought I was going to be safe. This was not part of the deal. I'm leaving. It's yeah. too dangerous. And... You can see that residual guilt throughout uh, this first half of book three where he tries to convince himself that it's for the best. He can always go back and 
someone was always going to fight the empire, the British empire. So uh, he can go back when he's needed. And it wasn't like Robin does this a lot throughout uh, the story, which is trying to convince himself of his own selfish decisions. Yeah, yeah. And like he wrestles with, uh, you know, the empire versus, you know, him benefiting off of the empire's riches of exploiting uh, his motherland. So this is a repeating theme throughout the book. But after he parts with Griffin, we are straight into junior year of, of yeah. the babblers and they are stressed. Did this <laughs> they <song> are hallucinating. <laughs> and I was having flashbacks of my junior year in, in yeah, college. Yeah, I remember I back like, when... Like these projects and papers were like the most important thing in the world to you. And also not too important for you not to do everything the night before it was due. Um, I feel like our um, our cohort were much more um, responsible as scholars than I was as undergrad. But at the same time, the feeling of like anxiety of needing to do really good at school was very, like you can feel it. I mean, the stakes are higher for them. <laughs> the stakes are higher for them because, you know, they have nowhere else to go if, you know, they get kicked out of Babel. And people do get kicked out of Babel in a very public and humiliating way. Uh, so I can see why they were, you know, holding on to their yeah. dissertations and <laughs> yeah. really and just praying to God that, like, they pass. Yeah. And it all culminates with them passing their third year exams and all moving on to their fourth year, which was not guaranteed, right? They, they all had to, like, present – was it like a silver working final project or something? Yeah, they had to, like, come up with a match pair. Um, and this is kind of where we see the beginnings of the rift in the friendship. Uh, we see how, you know, like I predicted in the first uh, half of the book, Letty is <laughs> – is grappling with some white fragility. And um, yeah, like we're seeing the beginnings of the rift between Letty and Victoire. Um, I think at one point, Letty was trying to tell Victoire like, hey, why don't you write a dissertation on like Haitian voodoo stuff? And Victoire's like, I... I really don't want to. No, it was the professor that was trying. That was just back in book two. The professor was trying to get Victoire to write a dissertation on voodoo because he wanted yeah. to harvest those match pairs. And Letty was like, why not? Why not? Yeah. But like this line of thinking continues. Um, they continuously have fights like this. And Letty just doesn't understand. And uh, You'll see later on how this just kind of snowballs into <laughs> into a lot of bad mistakes. Yeah, at this point, as a reader, I'm only just mildly annoyed at Letty. But out of all of the white characters, she was probably the one with the most potential to uh, grow and transcend her um, her whiteness, I guess. And and it just there's there's so much hope. But. I mean, there that, that's the thing. She had she had hope. Um, like after their after their exams, they actually go to a ball, uh, a commemoration ball, and Letty's like, "Oh my god! Like we need to go because, you know, we went through a hard uh, year of exams, and you know, it's our chance to dress up." But of course, um, Oxford is mostly white, mostly male, so it is not a great time for Victoire, Robin, and Rami. And there's a lot of racial uh, aggression. I wouldn't even say microaggression during this scene. Yeah, Lady decides for them. Rami 
Robin and Victoire all don't want to go, but give in because of, I feel like they decided to go just to make her stop. Yeah, just to make her shut up. Yeah. And then also they they've had like a very tense relationship during during their exams and I'm like okay maybe this is a way to like patch <laughs> things up. Yeah. Uh, um, but they go and um you know Vic well they they go and like there there's a scene where um what is it they run into Robin's old housemate and his girlfriend just hands a wine glass to uh, Victoire being like, hey, like, get me another one. And that's when they realize that all of the servers at the ball are black and holding trays. And was it the girlfriend or the guy himself? I thought it was the guy himself. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it was it was one of the two. They're the same. <laughs> um, yeah. So they they go to the this thing and they get microaggressed like crazy. Um, Robin and Rami go there first to work the event just so they can afford to be there, right? And Victoire ends up being harassed by these, like, the, the poultry boys that we met in, like, book two. Um, and basically, they all decide just to leave because, like, they don't want to deal with it anymore. And this was, well, like... Well, before, before they leave, though, Letty is like, hey, Rami, like, why don't you dance with me? And Rami's like, you've got to be kidding, right? The only reason why we're here, like, why like why we haven't been like kicked out yet is because we are sticking to the sidelines as long as we, you know, keep our heads down and kind of like blend in with the help. We, we are tolerated. We are barely tolerated. Yeah. This is a, this is one of the many, like, I guess strikes against Letty's permanent record, which is not realizing that racism happens to people that don't look white, especially in situations like this. Right. Like I think Rami specifically says like, I'm not looking to get, beat up or murdered for dancing with a white girl yeah and then like also like when they uh, when victoire gets harassed um and and the guys are just like come on let's just leave letty is saying like i like it has nothing to do with race like i got harassed too because i'm a woman they said some like dirty things about me how come you guys aren't as concerned and i'm like wow (laughs) centering yourself as like the victim without realizing that race plays a huge part in the harassment of Victoire. It really reminds me of a lot of white feminists today. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's kind of the point. It's funny because um, there's been discourse online about Babel because I guess, I don't remember if it was one book talker or like several, but like there was a reviewer who like gave Babel zero stars because she felt that it made her feel bad for being white. And I think all Oh yeah, of the I think re- I think I read this review too. They were yeah. like reverse racism. And I'm like, that's that white people don't face racism. <laughs> they face racial prejudice because racism is systematic yeah. systemic oppression. So I'm like and- <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of the comments were like, wow. Man, this this reader really saw themselves in Letty. <laughs> like she was like a representation <laughs> for them in this book, and they did not like it. Yeah, like other reviews that I've, uh, other criticisms that I've read of Babel, where people saying, "Oh, it's you know, it hammers a lot of the themes into your head. It's not being subtle at all when it comes to like empire and racial aggression." And I'm like, I mean, for some people, it's 
being hammered down your heads. However, for other people, I guess most, most like non people of color, things will just kind of, you know, things are novice. Some things are things that they haven't really thought about every day. Whereas with people, readers of color, it's like, this is our lives. Of course, it's very obvious to us. I mean, the story I find does a really good job of capturing what it feels like to be a person of color or marginalized person in these like extremely like white spaces, right? It's, it is a constant, like you are constantly on edge and you're constantly being reminded of how different you are. Even if you're not like physically or like actively being reminded, it's there in the back of your head. And, you know, for those in the majority, it's really easy to turn a blind eye because like everyone has their own issues. But I think what the book, and especially what um, Rami, Robin, and Victoire are asking from Letty is to just please, for like one second, see things from their point of view. It's not even like seeing things from their point of view. It's just like, shut up. Like, just don't, (laughs) just listen and just nod your head. You don't need to make everything about you. Like, there always seems to be a scene where Letty, like, makes a suggestion or tries to make it about herself and it's like come on letty this isn't about you well i mean in her point of view and we see this later on in one of the interludes you know as a woman in like victorian england it is hard right because she has no rights she has to do she has to live in a very patriarchal society especially in high society but she can't help but equate her own inequality with the inequality that the rest of her cohort faces. And I think that that is her like biggest flaw. Yeah, I mean, this book definitely tells readers like intersectionality really matters. Solidarity must happen across all marginalized spaces to have progress. Uh, But we reach our first big turning point very early on in book three, uh, which is where Robin finds out that Victoire and Rami are part of the Ermi Society. Yeah. And he takes the fall for them, and Professor Lovell uh, interrogates him on his involvement. I mean, this is preceded by him running into Anthony on the streets of Oxford at a bookstore and chalking up to his third year exhaustion, right? Like, I must be hallucinating. I'm seeing someone who should be dead, which... I think we we mentioned this last episode. He totally faked his death, right? There's no way, like he just yeah, of course. I mean, Griffin. I mean, Griffin even tells us, like, yeah, at at a certain point, it's going to be very hard for you as a Babel student to uh, to like justify the work that you do for the Empire. So a lot of Babel students fake their deaths, and I'm like, that's Anthony. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, um, so with that, like, it kind of. Like, I were you surprised? I wasn't surprised that the Victoire and um, and Rami ends up like working with Hermes. Oh no, I was not surprised at all. What I was surprised by was how late they joined Hermes. Like, because Robin was there since like year one, but Victoire and Rami just started uh, to work for Hermes. Yeah, but Robin also ran into them early and was exposed to them a lot earlier. I feel like. Ermes as a secret society doing very illegal things that I think essentially is treason to the crown. I imagine they'd be very 
they need to make sure that you're in it in order before they recruit you. So I imagine they're not recruiting a lot of first years. That's true. I mean, this is like the beginning of their fourth year. So I guess you can't really also the skill level in in like where they would need you to pilfer silver work or to get information you're not going to give those two first years. So, yeah. Uh that it, it makes sense, but I was I was just like, yeah, for sure the uh the the black and uh, the black and brown people are fighting the empire. Of course they're going to be part of the Ermy society. I mean, it does make sense, right? Like we've seen time and time again that people who are marginalized are probably the people who can sympathize with those struggles the most and uh, we already know that Victor and Rami are used to operating and surviving in white spaces and also have pretty developed awareness of like where they stand in society and what they can and can't be. Yeah, I so, mean, they don't have the privilege of passing as white. They're going to stand out no matter what, even from a distance. So they have to operate on a different level in order to survive. So I was not surprised. Um so Robin Robin takes the fall and ends up being a martyr and his father Professor Lovell you know interrogates him and this is where we find out that Professor Lovell and a lot of the other faculty staff knows about Ermi society like they're very much aware that a lot of them are ex Babel students and he tells he asks Robin how long have you been working for the Ermi society and how like you're so ungrateful like you were supposed to be uh i guess like like griffin was the failed prototype you're you're supposed to be better than this and uh robin this is the start of robin kind of questioning uh professor level uh just face to face being like well like the empire is bad right this is unfair and Professor Lovell, you know, turns the question back, being like, if you think it's so unfair, why are you enjoying all of the benefits? Yeah. I mean, Robin in this scene is trying to defend his actions um, as part of Ermes by explaining to his father all the, the ways that Empire is doing harm um, to the world, not knowing that his father is the representation of the Empire. And Professor Lovell brings out all of the justifications of capitalism, you know, bring order, bring civilization to the world um, in a way that, like, makes all of Robin's arguments seem a little half-assed. Well, like, his argument is, oh, if, like, why is it unfair when, you know, China could just build its own translation center? They could just do the work themselves. Like, it's not our fault that they're not taking advantage of the resources that uh, they're given. And in the back of Robin's head, it's like, but those resources are being, like, it's not the same because you're pillaging your colonies and these other nations of their language and just taking their resources. And you can't just expect them to catch up overnight. It's just not possible. And um, this is also where Professor Lovell is just like, oh, Griffin, he's not the revolutionary that you are putting on a pedestal. Like he's actually, he's actually done some things that are very questionable. And this is when he finds out that Griffin killed his fellow uh, classmate, Evie Brooke, who was kind of 
uh, known to be this genius student who came up with like a bunch of match pairs. And, um, you know, she kind of has this legendary status at Babel. And Professor Lovell's just like, well, Griffin killed her. Is that the kind of side that you want to be in? Just cold murder. And Robin, as we've seen, is, you know, he's like, he's like for the cause, but he's kind of, um, it's like, as long as he doesn't get hurt, as long as he benefits from it, as long as he can keep his conscience clear, he'll be in, he'll be in the fight. But he has his foot halfway (laughs) into the door and halfway out. So this is when Professor Lovell hands him the Shekhov's uh, gun, pretty much. The bar that killed Evie Brooke. And obviously that gun is going to set off because it's Chekhov's gun. <laughs> it, it's really um, it's really subtle that uh, Rebecca writes Lovell, someone who is so sure of his own superiority that he can't fathom that this um, illegitimate son of his would ever turn against him violently, right? It's, it's That's like he's... Literally just a metaphor for the British Empire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but not only does this scene end with Professor Lovell handing him the bar that killed uh, Evie Brooke, he he tells Robin, like, you need to give us something. Otherwise, you're going to be kicked out of Babel. And Robin gives up the safe house um, that Griffin had told him a long time ago. And that's the only piece of information he's able to give. How, but it is, you know, it's still a betrayal. Yeah. What did you think about? Like, I, at that moment, I was like so disappointed in Robin. That sucked. Uh, what did you think about his, his betrayal there? I thought it was very much in character. <laughs> I was not surprised at all. <clears throat> and of course, like, at this point, Oxford is, you know, it's a utopia. So... I can see why he is unwilling to give that up. I was yeah. just like, of course he's going to give give up the safe house. Also, like, what are what are the risks? Because in his head, it's like, well, do they even use the safe house anymore? Like, how many people are going to actually be affected? I guess this piece of information is useful, but only to, like, a small extent. Well, I mean, that's just him convincing himself that he didn't do anything wrong, right? Which is something yeah. that he does a lot, which yeah. is... Which is Surely why I say Griffin it's in would character. have evacuated. Surely they wouldn't be. No, they're decentralized. So, like, if they did catch them, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be that bad. And it's there's something about like reading um, protagonists that are just a little spineless that still frustrates you, right? Because it's like you have some conviction. Why can't you go all the way? But yeah, like at this point in time, Robin still isn't able to put skin in the game right and i think personally i don't think he would i think he would have gotten off anyways if he didn't give up anything i don't know about that but i mean it's hard to say it could have gone either way um but moving on like victoire and rami are like why did you not tell us you were part of the ermi society don't you know that we've been wanting to fight the empire since like forever ago like why didn't you trust us and this also goes into, you know, Rami's interlude. Um, there's an interlude where it kind of goes into Rami's uh, backstory, how he ended up in England, how how he ended up as a Babel student. And I don't know, what did you think about that chapter? I think it was 
interesting. This was our first interlude, which becomes a thing for like the rest of the book, right? We also see the backstories of Letty and Victoire later on in the book. And I thought it was a good way to provide Rami with more character building that he didn't really get. Um, because we only really meet him after he arrives at Oxford. And, you know, his character is someone who is outspoken, is, you know, is kind of happy-go-lucky. But, you know, buried within him, you always see this kind of simmering rage and simmering anger at the British Empire and what they did to his people and what he has to do to keep surviving in in Oxford. And what I like about the interludes is that we get to see the stories that Rami, Victoire, and Letty don't share with Robin. Like their histories and their pain and what led them to where they are today. And invariably, they're all stories of surviving against oppression. Um, you know, Rami's story is about growing up as the son of a footman for a wealthy British lord in India. Uh, Rami's father is an educated man, and Rami himself is equally gifted at learning quickly. And this offers him some special benefits, but he eventually learns that he's still essentially seen as a second-class citizen, um, especially when he's paraded in front of um, other British lords by, by his masters. Yeah, and it's also the first time he realizes, oh, like, being hyper-visible, showing off how smart he is, isn't as great as he thought it would be. It puts him in danger. And he, this is kind of like when he understands the game that he has to play because his father, you know, he, you know, he's kind of put in the spotlight. They're asking him like, oh, you know, you're an educated man. I'm sure you didn't want to be a footman. Like, what would you have wanted to be? And it's a very dangerous place to be put in because um, you don't want to seem superior to your quote unquote masters. So this is kind of like where Rami realizes he needs to be charming. He needs to, you know, not step on the toes of the fragile white lords in order to protect himself and also to uh, advance in his studies. So it's a different kind of oppression that uh, Robin experienced. Because I feel like Robin wasn't robin learned that skill pretty late <laughs> in, I mean, in my opinion i mean it's similar to robin where he learns that in order to survive he needs to make himself a little more invisible right to kind of like let them see you as they want to see you um but he also has the benefit of feeling indignation about it being feeling angry about it right because of how his dad is treated about how his family is being treated Whereas, I mean, Robin's situation is he was literally saved from, like, death and cholera, right? So he, his footing, he didn't have as much of a foundation. He didn't have a family to fall back on. His family is literally his savior who won't acknowledge him. Um, Yeah, and with Rami, like, you know, he doesn't have a choice in, in leaving either because this white lord is like, hey, give me your son. I'll take him to England and make him into like this, I'll make him into this worthy cog of the empire. <laughs> and it's like, the well, parents don't want him to take away their their son, but they're kind of forced into this position where it's like, oh, they have to feel grateful 
well, to like be a, able to like well it's like a greater allegory for just empiring extraction right it's Babel runs on knowledge runs on intelligence and runs on specifically foreign foreign languages and so people like Rami people like Victoire people like Robin are just resources for them to extract and gather right like, like who cares if you're taking a kid away from their family and you're just you know, taking away everything that they know. Well, I mean, like, I, I, yeah, I mean, I saw this theory that like was Professor Lovell just going around like knocking up Chinese women in hopes of creating more resources for his institute. Because like, I can definitely see Professor Lovell seeing his like sperm as like a precious resource because I can create smart foreign kids with this. With 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 yeah, he dick, definitely right? has the the whole eugenics thing going on yeah shall we move on to the canton trip yeah and so this leads up to their fourth year trip which is them going to canton which i do like the fact that rebecca kuang uses the british name for guangzhou canton which is like it's a word that's not in use anymore you don't it's like kind of like oriental and other like like peking right bombay right yeah it's like it's 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 not the actual name. It's just the name that the British gave it that became like what it was in all the maps. Um, but yeah, they, they go to Canton as part of their senior trip, which um, which is kind of like, uh, I think it's supposed to be like essentially like a study abroad work study trip, right? They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're going as translators to resolve a trade issue. And on the way there, um, it's like the most awkward boat ride, right? Because <laughs> no one's like Rami and Victoire are still mad at, Robin for keeping the Ermi Society from them. And Robin is mad at them for being mad at him because he was just trying to protect them. I think they also, they already know that he gave us a safe house, right? So they're also mad at him for like being a traitor. Um, and then Letty's just upset that no one's talking to each other and can't understand why. Yeah, she's just like, why is everything so tense? Why is everybody like so mad at each other? Yeah. I feel like I'm being excluded and you know and and that's is. the crux right like she it's not that her friends are being awkward it's the fact that she's being excluded and she doesn't know why and that she wants to fix it and that she can't and i think rebecca just writes like white fragility so well especially in the form of letty just like you know it's really not your problem you probably shouldn't you know stick your stick your nose in it but you will because you think everything is about you. Listen, everybody knows a Letty in their life. And if you don't, you're probably the Letty. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, they go to Canton to act as translators uh, because there's this escalating conflict between the Qing dynasty and the empire because uh, China is refusing to allow British opium to be uh, mass imported. And it's yeah. it's just like funny because you and I called it in the last episode. We're like, opium war well, has I mean, to go you, into that. If you know your history, I mean, it's kind of obvious what it was leading up to, right? Because I imagine a lot of people reading this book are, if not learning about the opium war for the first time, learning what the opium war is actually about. Because the opium wars... I remember reading about it in world history class in high school, but it didn't really go into the reasons, right? And the reasons of why the opium war happened, just it was a war between 
England and China and ended with China literally capitulating to the British Empire, opening its borders to trade and giving the British Empire Hong Kong as a port for like 100 years. The handover of Hong Kong back to China in like, I think it was 97, was a big international event back in the 90s. And I have a lot of friends who are still technically British citizens because they were born in Hong Kong while it was still a British colony. And I just wonder how many people are learning about this for the first time, that the Opium War was actually a war fought for the right to sell drugs to China to fix the trade deficit. Yeah, the trade deficit was probably something that most people did not learn in school. It's definitely something that I didn't learn in school. (laughs) I just learned it because I read a lot of books by Asian authors. And it just happened that, you know, the Chinese Opium War was, was a big deal. So it showed up in a lot of literature where it where it's set in China. So that was kind of my first exposure to <laughs> yeah. to, to the opium wars. Yeah, and it's I thought it was it's such a Chinese move to be like, well, you know, I'll sell you all the stuff that you love, right? I'll sell you your porcelain, I'll sell you the teas, but um, I don't want any of your shit because they all suck. And so the only thing, the only demand there was for foreign goods was opium, which is drugs. Um, and it's not even through legitimate channels, right? It's just like, it's a vice that you're pushing on to the people in order to make your money back, to make this trade deficit. Yeah, and China knows that opium is, you know, it's deadly. They know that it's not something that they should allow into their country in mass amounts. And the British, they're tr- they're they're trying to cover their asses and lie, being like, I don't understand, like, why they don't want opium it's used it's like it's used for good it's used at like hospitals like it's not dangerous and and like robin is watching this in like at the dinner table being like but like there are so many laws in 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 england that prevents people from using opium because it is dangerous (laughs) so now you are now you are trying to sell that same drug to China and, and trying to convince them Well, I mean, safe. this entire, like, let's say arc, right? The Canton arc of Babel. Like, all these white people suck. Um, they're all just so full of themselves and, deluge- and delusional, right? They think, at the same time that they think all Chinese people are dumb and lazy and they want our opium because they're vice-filled people, but at the same time, but also watch out for the smart ones. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I thought it was so funny. Like, there was a scene in in the there was a scene where they're in Canton and they're having dinner, and it's like really shitty British food being cooked by Chinese chef there. And Robin's like, "Why are you eating this garbage?" Like, there's like good Chinese food, and they're like, "Oh, but it reminds us of home." And he's like, but this is like very <laughs> bad copies of dishes yeah. in, in, at home. I don't understand why you're suffering through this. And one of the one of the British lords or British politicians, I forgot his name, whatever. Like he's saying all these shitty things about the Chinese people being like they're barbarians. Like this is far, fair trade. They're so stupid. Why aren't they taking our opium? And Robin's like, you do realize that I'm Chinese. Right. Well, that was Mr. Bayless. And then he looks at him. That was who? That was Mr. Bayless. Okay. Well, I don't remember his name. They're all they're, <laughs> I like they're all the same to me, pretty much. Like racist white people. Um, 
But he's like, oh, and he laughs at Robin. He's like, no, you're not. You're not Chinese. And it was it, it was just like a moment of, wow. Like, it's a painful moment for Robin because, like, his entire life, he've, he's had to, like, downplay his Chinese-ness in order to survive. And to have this British man being like, oh, no, you're not Chinese. You're you're British is kind of like a rude awakening for him being like, okay, maybe I don't want to be a part, (laughs) don't want to be a part of this. I mean, this entire trip, he is being like put in a very tough situation, right? Because he's going home for the first time. So throughout the entire voyage, he was stressing out about what if I don't see, what if I don't recognize anything anymore? What if I don't feel like this is my home? And then so this interaction just like further plunging the knife into his heart where it's like, well, what am I then? Where do I belong? Because in addition to all this like anxiety of going home for the first time, it's compounded with the guilt of A, betraying the Hermes Society and B, betraying his friends too at the same time. And so all of this pressure is just mounting in him. And he's also betraying his motherland because he has to play translator um, he he has to translate for uh, one of the officials and try to convince the the Chinese like, hey, like buy our stuff, buy our drugs, and he knows that it's not something that is right. So that's an added pressure. Yeah, and so uh, in this moment, he is like, well, he's only not Chinese now that he is needed for British interests because. Oh, yeah. The world, otherwise, the world never lets him forget that he's Chinese. Even his own father never lets him forget that part of him is Chinese, and he, that he, his dad hates Chinese, even though he loves Chinese the language. stuff. <laughs> like he loves the language, right? He loves everything but the people, and um, that's a thing that comes up later too. Yeah. So one of my favorite scenes in book three is when Robin is translating, and he meets Commissioner Lin, and they're trying to negotiate. And trying to figure out, like, what can they do uh, to facilitate trade? And it's it's an awkward situation. And, you know, like, his, his the, the British lord that he's, like, translating for is being very racist. Like, is not pulling any punches back. Yeah, well, I saw a lot of parallels between this confrontation and the confrontation between Robert and his father earlier on where one side is making kind of half-assed, incoherent arguments, and the other side is just being like, well, no, right? What was really funny to me was um, Robin being like, this, like, I can't translate this racist shit. It's not gonna, it's not gonna end well. So he translate in, like, a very, like, neutral, deadpan voice, trying to make things as inoffensive as possible, which is, you know, not a true quote-unquote translation. And it just reminded me of a lot of experiences that uh, bilingual uh, bilingual children of immigrants go through <laughs> where they've had to translate for their parents. And it's it's like, how much do I translate? How much do I let my parents know how shittily they're being treated right now? <laughs> Did you ever have to go through that? I don't think I've ever had that experience. Oh, I've had to do that all the freaking time because my dad my my dad speaks english pretty fluently but he traveled quite a bit so ever since i was like three or four years old uh, i translated for my mom um i remember like 
one of my earliest memories when I came to America when I was like three was um, my mom said that I had to learn English fast. So um, like after preschool and stuff, I I had to like do a lot of like workbooks and um, like there have been moments where like I, I would have to translate for my mom at school and like they would say some very microaggressive things and I'm like, I don't know how to translate this. I'm like five years old. Like I trying to explain certain things to her and she's just like, I don't understand why this is an American thing. Why? Like, why do I have to follow these rules? Um, and then there were times where we would we would be. Um, there would be t- there would be times where like we would be pulled over by like a traffic cop and I would have to like explain why <laughs> we were being pulled over and then there would be a lot of microaggressions there. So yeah, it's something that I've experienced my entire life and uh it's it's a really shitty experience to to be a child and to protect your parents and to kind of build this shield through translation. But Robin's using it for <laughs> Uh, it, it's just like very funny to me that Robin's just like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not translating this racist bullshit and all of your propaganda about how the Chinese are stupid because they're not letting drugs into their country. And I just like how Commissioner Lin and Robin are just kind of like looking at each other, being like, is this guy serious? <laughs> is this guy serious? Like, does he really think that we're gonna say yes to opening up our ports to drugs? just because they're throwing a tantrum. Yeah, and at the end of the conversation, um, Commissioner Lin actually sends Mr. Bayless away and pulls Robin aside for a more frank private conversation um, where he straight up asks Robin what he thinks about the situation. And if China were to um, bend the knee and um, give in to Britain's demand if they would back off. And Robin, you know, pulling on his experience um, working with and for the British um, as a Chinese person in England and his experience with people like his father um, pretty much tells him straight up, no, he doesn't think that they'll back off, that they'll keep going until they get what they want. And Commissioner Lin thanks him and uh, proceeds to uh, go and set everything on fire. Um, but before that, actually, there's also a scene where... Um, Robin and Rami are walking around outside in Canton and they stop at a, a bridge looking out into the harbor. And this is when they have their first heart-to-heart since the heist incident, uh, when they finally clear the air and talk about everything that's bothering them. Um, and Robin, having been through just days of high stress, being like responsible for translating um, for these terrible people to do harm to his homeland, you know, looks out into the ocean and tells Rami that it's like he doesn't know if he's allowed to exist. And, you know, this is the first time that we see him vocalizing his like internal, um, I guess, descent into despair. Yeah, yeah. And because Canton has a law at this point saying, oh, no foreigners outside like of this port area. But um Robin is able to go around that because he is Chinese. He was born there. And, you know, it's like a really weird feeling where he kind of sees what he's been repressing this entire time. Yeah. And during this scene, you know, he, he's walking around the docks. He tries to find his own house and finds that there is an opium den there now. Um, 
and um, it's kind of like it's it's a very on the nose metaphor that his home has now turned into like this um this example of what he is doing to his own homeland right or what his homeland wants him to do well it also reminds robin of what happened to his family because his family used to be pretty well off until his uncle gambled away their fortune to buy opium and this is why his family is this is why his family is in a slum village and they are susceptible to cholera so it's like he's reminded like okay like i got this great education i got to be in babel but like i wouldn't have been there and i wouldn't have been there if there was an opium yeah i mean for the first time he's thinking kind of critically about the many things that had to happen for him to be in this situation right that yeah like how it's kind of full circle right his opium caused the downfall of his family which indirectly caused them to get wiped out which indirectly caused him to be taken away to the british empire to england and now he's back here to bring more opium to china and another interesting part of this conversation on this bridge is rami kind of explaining that how opium also links china to india where rami's from because the poppy plants used to make the opium comes from his homeland and at one point in time before he was plucked away to uh, to be groomed for Babel, his career trajectory was to maybe become a manager of those poppy plantations, growing the opium too. Yeah. And it just shows how the British Empire pits, uh, you know, other nations against each other, marginalized people against each other in order to benefit from all of that pain, all of that suffering. Yeah, and while they're on the British, they start seeing um basically um they see a large plume of smoke floating up on across the docks and this is when they learn that commissioner lin has decided to set fire to all the opium which i have to say is a pretty badass move i i really like i was just like yay what what a (laughs) statement Yeah, it definitely sent a message, and this forces Professor Lovell to cut the trip short and send the Babel crew back to um, England on the next boat out. Um, And this is also when... So the tensions have been rising for a long time, for like half the book at this point. And and this next chapter, this final chapter of book three, is when um, the first, like the first of many turns happen, right? Because... Professor Lovell is instantly suspicious of Robin because I guess Mr. Bayless probably told Professor Lovell that uh, Commissioner Lin pulled Robin aside and talked to him privately. And he wants to know what Robin said. Did he do anything wrong? Like, <laughs> he was, I, I feel like he was just saying how it is, but of course, I, I mean, that's not know, the you, translation that he wanted. I mean, you, that is valid, but I feel like. Seeing how Robin is through the rest of this story, a part of him knew what he was doing, knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is a moment where he's very disenchanted by the Empire and kind of sees like the consequences of what his actions can bring. <laughs> so it's, yeah. Um, yeah. So this was a really hard, 
um, chapter to read, not because of the outcome, but because of just the verbal abuse that is being laid onto onto Robin and all of the father-son tension that has been brewing over the last half of the book, it all comes out, right? Robin finally asked Professor Lovell the, all the things that he was afraid to ask, chief among which is, why did you let my mother die? Yeah, yeah. How did you feel when um, when basically the, the mask just comes off of both of these characters, Robin and Professor Lovell? I think it was very like in the beginning I was I was just like when is Robin going to grow a spine and it makes sense that this would happen in in Canton where he is back to where he started back where he met Professor Lovell and he's able to see things more clearly from a young adult's perspective. Yeah, I mean, every other time that he tried to confront Professor Lovell, Lovell always had like a logical excuse, right? He always had like, well, that's just the way things work. It's a very like parent thing to say to like a, a child throwing a tantrum. But like we saw glimpses of his anger in, I think it was like chapter two, right? When when Robin missed a class once. And I think this is, I want to say the first time we saw that Professor Lovell again, is when he loses his temper against Robin here because of what Robin, quote-unquote, cost him and the British Empire, right? Like, all that uh, opium. It, it was like one million pounds yeah, of it, opium. That, yeah. it remi- have you ever seen RRR? The, the, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of, like, do you know how much this bullet cost? That speech that the um, British um, governor um, keeps saying throughout that throughout that film. It's like, you know... Nothing matters as much to a capitalist than losing money, right? And that is like what he's really mad about, which like put in the context of what with what we find out later, like this is exactly what he wanted. So why is he so mad? He's mad because they lost a lot of money. And Robin understands at this point, wow, like I am literally just an asset to you. I am not human. And yeah. um, And you talked about wanting Robin to grow a spine. And he does. And I mean, were you were you happy you got what you wished for, Rira? I mean, I knew it was going to happen. I just thought it was, I thought it was really interesting because like in book one, you see a scene where Robin is translating for the first time. And it's from like a racist uh, sailor to this Chinese laborer. And he translates so that he could get, you know, to keep himself safe. And he keep himself safe at the detriment of his countrymen and this time around he's a young adult and he is translating and he uses his translation abilities to essentially protect his uh, motherland and you know professor lovell like all throughout the book he you know he has like racist tirades being like oh the chinese are lazy they don't know what to do with their own riches and yeah, all all of the ugliness comes out in this scene, in this confrontation scene. I mean, we've seen glimpses of it, but it like comes full out in this scene. And it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, but when I ask you about was it what you wish for is, did you expect Robin growing a spine to be so murdery? I mean, it was always going to end that way, right? <laughs> like, Well, were you surprised that it happened like right here? I was kind of surprised that like, it got, I mean, I'm not surprised it got violent because, again, this is a Rebecca Kwong book, but that it was Professor Lovell and it was here in a boat. I mean, like, once I saw the opium was put on fire, I was like, oh, this is not going to end well with Professor Lovell. <laughs> and, you know, 
the entire time I was like, he has that Chekhov's silver bar, so something's going to explode. We've had this like powder keg this entire time, so it has to explode at some point. Yeah, but did I think that it was going to happen in a boat? No, but it makes sense because committing murders on boats and hiding the body and having an alibi is really difficult. So it makes sense that it would happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, their boat I ride. did not expect that book four, because we're moving, this is the end of book three. Moving into book four, we would start with essentially a murder mystery thriller, right? Not murder mystery, because not a mystery, but like a how to get away with murder thriller. I mean, it's funny that you mentioned how to get away with murder, because I, because <laughs> I was like, oh, a group of students who are trying to cover their asses during a murder and build an alibi. It definitely reminded me of that when I was reading the scene where yeah. Victoire is taking charge. She's like, no, like we <laughs> we have to hide the body. Like we have to pretend that he- Professor Lovell is sick so that no one sees him. And like she just like goes into like crisis mode. And yeah. my respect for Victoire just like skyrocketed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was really cool to see that the cohort was so ride or die for Robin. Like Victoire, uh, Rami were immediately jumping into action. And Letty is even all in at this point, right? Like the whole crew is like, we're going to help our friend get away with murdering his dad. Because um, I think, I think for Letty at least, she can justify like, oh, he was a pretty shitty dad. So he probably, something happened, right? Yeah. I mean, like with Letty, it's like, oh yeah, I've had a, I've had an abusive father. So I can see like why Robin would retaliate against, against his father. But she's totally missing the whole racism point. It's like it's not just because he's a shitty dad; it's because he's a shitty racist colonial dad. Yeah, but I mean, at least for the time being, in the first parts of book four, she has Robin's back. Which you know, at this point of her character development, a part of me kind of saw, oh, maybe there is hope. Maybe she is like instead of being an allegory for white fragility, she can be a an allegory for true allyship, right? Because at this point, she is kind of putting her own reputation, safety, life on the line for her marginalized friends, which is technically more than Robin was willing to give up throughout the first half of the book. Yeah, Rebecca gives you hope that maybe this is the transformation of a white, fragile feminist to an actual ally. Uh, <laughs> Does that uh, does that actually play out in, in in the end? No, not really. But we're no, not there yet. Not really. <laughs> we're not there yet. Oh, Letty is just the worst. Um, but we do get a, a example of a white ally later on. But um, at this point, though, um, like this was a really tense chapter for our characters, and you can really feel that through all of their interactions. And like this entire back half of the book, like books four and five, is just nonstop, just nonstop tension. Right? Like Arf Kwan just constantly just tightens the screw tighter and tighter and tighter and i don't know if you read poppy war but it really no has, i didn't poppy war also follows the same kind of trajectory where the first half of the book is kind of like oh making friends and enemies in fake fantasy military school and then halfway through that book war breaks out and now like everything gets real and like people start dying and this is when the story truly becomes like an R of Quan book because like from this point on, like there are no more fun school times. Like school times are over. Now it's now we're on the run because we're trying to get away with murder. 
And they end up at um, Professor Lovell's uh, estate in Hampstead. Uh, they're hiding there too. It's, they're staying low over there. And this is when, um, this is when Victoire, Rami, and Robin are telling Letty, like all the, all the racism, all the racial aggressions and microaggressions that they face, like all the opportunities that you know get that they're denied just because they are people of color and letty starts breaking down and she cries well, being like i'm so sorry and i'm like <laughs> and then and then all three of them are like okay it's it's good that she listened but why does it feel odd why does it feel not right well i mean and then they find out later is because she is you know she's using their pain well i mean the so line that our used there is like why after all the things that we told her, she is the one that needs to be comforted. And this is an experience that Kathy Park Hong uh, mentions in her book, Minor Feelings, because there was a moment where she got, when racial slurs were being thrown at her during like a subway ride and her white friend tried to like intervene and, you know, she's just like, stop, it's not going to do anything. And then they get off at the next stop and like her white friend breaks down being like, this has never happened to me. And it's like... (laughs) The racial slurs weren't fired against you, it was fired against Kathy. And why is it that Kathy, the person, the victim of those racial slurs, is comforting you? Yeah, this was the part where all the hope that I had for Letty during the boat sequence where they're trying to just like, where she has everyone's back starts to like, starts to fade a little bit because... She's the one trying to get the crew to uh, turn themselves in because the cops will um, listen to us if we tell them that it was self-defense that Robin, a Chinese man, killed Lovell, a British gentleman. Yeah. Like, was it what, what was it that Rami said? Rami was just like, oh, is that how things work? Like, white, white women commit crimes and they just tell the justice system that it's an accident and they just let them go? <laughs> this is also when Letty... Um, finds out about the Ermi Society because she overhears uh, Rami, Robin, and Victoire talk about it. And she's like, what's the Ermi Society? Yeah, and this is also uh, when, uh, while they were staying at Professor Lovell's um, estate, um, they Robin takes a look around Professor Lovell's office and finds um, documents proving that the plan was always to instigate a war with China over opium and that their um, their school trip there to negotiate was not in good faith. He finds out that even the people that they met there, including the German reverend uh, who seemed to quote unquote love the Chinese people, um, despite their Chineseness, um, was giving them intel on China's troop and naval placements around the port. So um, Rami and Victoire all become privy to these documents and you know they want to find a way to stop Britain from entering this unjust war with China and the solution for them is to um, bring them to the Ermi Society yeah to the Ermi Society and this is when Letty walks in on them and learns about the Ermi Society and I think at this point I was still like okay she can still come around maybe like she just needs to meet more marginalized people and you know, open her eyes to what it's like to be them. I, I think at this point, she still sucked, but I still thought she could be saved at this point. Personally, I don't know about you. Yeah, it was, it was just like there, there was room for character growth and there was hope, but I am cynical. So I was like, <laughs> she's not going to come around. It's just, there's just no way. Right. Um, 
But um, so Anthony finds them and he brings them into the Ermi's headquarters, which is at this abandoned old library. Well, before that happens, they they actually go back to school. Oh, that's true. They and you know they're trying to build their alibi. Yeah. So as they um, so as they try to reach out to Ermi Society because again they're they're decentralized and um, Robin doesn't actually know how to reach out to Griffin or Anthony, so they just try to get the message out wherever they can. Um, but they still have to go back to school. And part of their responsibilities as fourth years is to attend like the annual, it was a faculty dinner or something. It was something. <laughs> it was where they had, it was where they had to show up. And Professor Lovell is not there because obviously he's dead. And they've been just lying their asses off being like, oh, he's sick. He'll like churn up eventually. Yeah. And this is when was um, it Professor Playfair? Where yeah, and this it is was when, Professor Playfair. Yeah, I mean, this whole event was kind of tense. They were trying their best to lay low and just get through this banquet without acting suspicious. Um, when Professor Playfair just walks up to him and you know, on the DL tells him, Yo, I'm part of Ermes too. Like, I believe you have something for me. And, you know, this was a moment where, where I was actually proud of Robin because um, he's, he was able to discern how full of shit Professor Playfair was at this point. His bullshit censor. He was like, there's no way Professor Playfair is for the Ermi Society. This man who, like, does, like, fucking, like, ceremonies to... Like, this this man who builds, like, the security wards of Babel to be as painful as possible. Like, there's no way. <laughs> Yeah. And as they try to make their escape, this is when they run into Anthony finally. And Anthony takes them to their safe house, which is like an old library. And there's it's still on the Oxford grounds, right? Yeah, it's still on Oxford grounds and uh it's just a library that's been passed around between like local colleges and no one really knows like who it belongs to because they're like, "Oh, it's like the storage library." Like Yeah. Like we don't we don't need to go there. So they're hiding in plain sight. Yeah, and then we're introduced to the Oxford, I guess Oxford cell of the Ermi Society, which comprises of like every essentially every postgraduate student of like a marginalized background, including an Irish student, which makes sense if you think about the history of the British Empire. Is Kathy Kathy is Irish. Okay, never mind. I was like, is she Scottish? No, she's Irish. She's Irish. Yeah, because she wants yeah, she, really she's a Gaelic sur- scholar. I was pretty surprised that Kathy was among the <laughs> the Ermi's uh, comrades because I was like oh like what does she have to lose and you know I was like okay like this is the version of th- this is the ally that we hope Letty will become <laughs> I mean it's not even that because remember this is like the early 1800s right this was like before like whiteness was a thing right like people still had prejudices based on where you're from. And English people definitely had prejudices against Scottish and Irish. Yeah. But I was surprised that, like, it was, like, all of the postgraduates. Yeah. <laughs> like, I imagined, like, some of them, but I was like, all of them? It's like, how have they not gotten caught? But it, it turns out that they're very careful. And uh, despite being decentralized, they know what they're doing. Yeah. And their goal right now is also to stop this unjust war between England and China and um, thanks to the documents that Robin and crew um, procured, um, they now have like essentially the smoking gun. And their goal is to turn public sentiment against the war and convince Parliament, uh, specifically the more progressive wing of Parliament, to vote down the war. 
and this is when the book starts getting into like the politics of resistance, right? Like, is violence necessary? Um, and you know, we see um, the two sides represented by Anthony, who believes that you can achieve, they can achieve their goals through nonviolent ways and politics, and Griffin, uh, who makes his triumphant return, um, who believes that violence is necessary to fight against empire. Yeah, Anthony believes that they can lobby to parliament and kind of like pass out pamphlets and believes that, you know, if they have all of the knowledge, then they'll see how wrong this is and they'll side with justice. And Griffin is cynical and is like, no, it doesn't matter. Like they know what they're doing is wrong. There's nothing that's going to bring them to (laughs) like the negotiation table violence is the only way yeah and i agree with griffin all the way maybe i'm just a violent (laughs) a violent person but i'm just like yeah there's no way that like paperwork and diplomacy i mean obviously it will it will get you to a certain extent but they talk about like the abolition movement in england and how that wasn't done in good faith like that was done because um because of economics (sighs) right abolition was a decision made as a economic and political move. Because like at this time, like England had England had lost America as a colony just like maybe two reigns ago. So for them it's like, well, it's it's economical for us to um, you know, lean into abolition while setting our eyes on India. So really, it does not come from good faith at all. Yeah, and you can see echoes of that in our own American discourse over slavery and the Civil War, right? Um, defenders of the Confederacy will say that the war was fought over states' rights and not over slavery, but unable to see the connection between states' rights, economics, and slavery and how they're all intermingled and how it all stems from capitalism and capitalism's need to extract the most amount of resources and produce the most amount of work using the cheapest labor possible. Yes. And if we look at it today, I mean, the British monarchy, a lot of the riches that they enjoy are through colonization. It's through, you know, they earn their riches through slave labor. And that is still present today. And and like it just Griffin brings up the point of like violence shocks the system and the system can't sustain the shock. So, yeah. It's essentially the entire yeah. the entire empire is essentially like an economic bubble, right? The assumption is the bubble will keep growing, and the empire does everything it can to keep the bubble growing. But resources are finite. People aren't cogs. They aren't machines. Essentially, things will slow down. Things will break down. The bubble will be too big for it to be sustained. And even a small shock to it can cause it to pop. Um, and I mean, I think both Anthony and Griffin are their views are aligned at this point, which is the act of empire is inherently unsustainable because it requires more and more resources to maintain. Their main difference is just how far they go to shock the system. Yeah. And, you know, we kind of see this mirrored in, you know, America's civil rights movements. There were people who believed that nonviolent protests were were the way to go. And then there were groups where they're like, no, violence is necessary because what they're doing to us, the suppression is violence. So the only way we can dismantle it is through violence. Yeah. Um, And I think 
the ironic thing is that this talk of violence is what sets Letty off, right? Like she, in her white fragility, can't handle the um, idea of her friends in this group potentially doing something violent. And so she betrays them. Um, What did you think of when she left that morning just to go take a walk outside? I was like, oh, no, she's turning on them. When when, I mean, like, because like throughout the book, um, she gets like panic attacks because, you know, the revelations that she receives from all the events that have occurred. Like, it's too much for her brain, too much for her white, fragile brain. And when when they're like, oh, if you need to breathe, just go into the yard. It's right there. And she's like, mm, the yard feels a little bit penned in. So I'm going to go outside for realsies. And I was like, oh, no, no, don't <laughs> trust her. <laughs> right. And yeah, she she turns them in. She calls the cops. And essentially, um, all the upperclassmen, all the postgraduates, except for Griffin, are killed they're killed off screen which is i guess which is a mercy that isn't afforded to um what happens with um, basically this is when we have our first major death because professor Lovell's death doesn't count as something we care about it's just a plot point um but yeah victoire rami and robin are hiding out in was it the library or like the study or something? Yeah, they were they were hiding in some room. I think it was yeah, a study. Are, are are hiding from the chaos, and then Letty comes in with a gun and asks them to turn themselves in and save themselves. If they turn themselves in, like they won't be killed, they'll you know have a fair trial because she's like Babel needs you guys. You guys are a resource. They're not going to just you know toss you guys away. Also, she and, knows people because her dad's an admiral. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, um, there is a brief struggle and Rami ends up getting shot by Letty and dies. And I had a feeling if anyone was going to get shot or if anyone wasn't going to make it out of that confrontation, it was probably going to be Rami. I think he had like... Yeah, same here. He had death flags like throughout this entire like section, I feel like. Yeah. And also like like Letty, Letty had a thing for Rami, right? Like I wasn't imagining... No, that. like they outright say it, or Robin they outright, outright says it. say it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Letty does not handle rejection well, so I was like, "Yeah, Rami's gonna die if, if anything." But I was still sad. <laughs> he was my favorite character, and I was like, "How?" Like, well, this I is was like, "How dare you, Rebecca?" My heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, as Robin and Victoire gain some more space between this incident, you know, and they reflect more. Um, it comes to light more and more that um, that Letty shooting Rami may have been more intentional than they thought um, because the way it happened yeah. was um, Letty was aiming at Robin at first and then Rami seems to get in the way. But, you know, after we learn a few things later on, it does make sense that, you know, even if she didn't want to do it, it was on purpose. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did not give her the benefit of the doubt. I was just like, oh, no, she definitely killed on purpose. Because I was just like, you know, she's the Admiral's daughter. She knows how to use firearm. Like, why didn't she aim for a non-fatal part? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess um, I didn't get that until like in chapter 32 is when they give context to everything, which is when it made more sense to me, I guess. So I guess you're you're better at reading these context clues than I am. <laughs> I think I'm just very cynical like i said and i'm like 
I don't believe in any good faith <laughs> at, at this point. So I was like, oh, yeah, d- it, was it an accident? I don't think so. I mean, Robin's murder of Professor Lovell, I don't see that as an accident. <laughs> like, I thought that was very purposeful. Of course, you know, in his mind, he was very frantic. And, you know, maybe he didn't think about it at the time, but I thought it was very, like, intentional. So to me, I was like, Letty, this was this was an intentional um intentional kill yeah i mean i feel like with robin and you see this with griffin and also with professor lovell is like the the men of the lovell family don't deal like have have anger issues right (laughs) and are are and you know and are quick to reach the violence and i think that's something that that's an ongoing thing for the rest of the story as well um but yeah robin and victoire are end up um, being arrested because of Letty's betrayal, uh, but not before Victoire successfully burns the contact list for other Hermes Society cells. Which good way move, to go, Victoire. Victoire! And then we have probably like this is when like this book gets turned up to full RF Kong, right? Because everything from now on is just like we get hit by like two or three like tragedies deaths and also really tough scenes one after another in like the last parts of book four like how like yeah, as there's someone, torture yeah as someone experiencing rf kwan book for the first time how how did these like how did this section of the story like hit you i mean once they got into prison i was like oh no like british prisons are no like a notorious for uh their torture methods so i was just like hmm, i don't know like it's probably going to be pretty bleak and uh yeah some reading some of some of the the pain that i mean reading like not just like the physical torture but like the psychological torture that robin went through that was that was nuts <laughs> i was like that is a level of darkness that it's not gory but it does the job of like painting such a grisly picture <laughs> yeah rebecca definitely knows how to write pain very well um and i mean we meet our next very hateable british man sterling jones who is like the golden child of of babel who we've heard mentioned before as like one of the lead like hunters of the army society like he was responsible for like a massacre of their team at burma and we've met Sterling before in an early scene in Professor Lovell's house uh, while Robin was still growing up there, where he said some pretty nasty things about Chinese people. And you know, Sterling also has apparently has history with with Griffin that that we learn about a little bit later. Yeah, I mean, like, so Griffin, Sterling, and Evie were in the same class, and Sterling, it seems like he had a thing for Evie. So there is like a personal. Right. Uh, we didn't talk about resentment. We skipped the part when they were still training in the Ermy Society where Robin and Griffin chat for the first time since um, Robin quit on him. And Robin asked him straight up, like, what happened with Evie? And we learned that Griffin killed Evie because Evie betrayed him, right? Because he was trying to recruit her into the Ermy Society. And she was playing along until she um, essentially led him into a trap. And much like Robin convincing himself of like his murder of Professor Lovell, um, Griffin has also convinced himself that he was just trying to protect himself. Yeah, but but going back to the scene, like Griffin breaks him out of the out of prison. They are confronted by Sterling Jones. There's some 
personal beef between the two of them. And they they both pull out their guns and it does not end well for either of them. Yeah, they shoot each other um, and they both die. And like... Um, Truly an English duel. Yeah. Nobody wins. Yeah. And there's an extra long footnote in this section summarizing the story of Griffin's own cohort at Babel, which was made up of himself, Anthony, Evie Brooks, and Sterling Jones. And we get a brief glimpse of like a side story or like a prequel story to Babel about Griffin's cohort and their relationships with each other, including the fact that Griffin, Sterling, and Evie were involved in a love triangle. And I, I really like that um, we got this small glimpse of like other stories that happen um, in this world. I think it's very funny how Griffin and the rest of the Ermi society thought that Evie would be a better, like a safer recruit. They were like, oh, out of like between Evie and Sterling, surely Evie would be the one to uh, understand how it feels to be marginalized and understand our strife. Yeah. But it turns out that you can be part of a marginalized group and still uphold <laughs> the white supremacist uh, society, yeah. white supremacist system. Much like Letty, they they learn that, you know, when the chips are down, being white is probably takes the highest priority over everything else. Like I feel like um it reminds me of like the terrible rich family of Knives Out. Where they put on the oh, front. I was about to of, say, yeah. yeah, yeah. They put on the front of being like they put very, on the front. like open to diversity, um, but when the chips are down, they protect themselves first and foremost, and that's essentially what it, this all is. It's just them, like wanting to protect their way of life. And so, yeah, we we get two major deaths, one after another, at the end of book four, and we end with Robin and Victoire on the run, and. Um, resolved to essentially finish things, right? Yeah, yeah, because they were like, okay, these pamphlets that the Anthony's plan is not going to work. So, what is the greatest resource that they can take hostage? And what is like their greatest negotiation ship? And they're like, Babel, the tower. Yeah. And so we move on to book five, which covers the um, revolution alluded to in the title of Babel. And I was actually kind of delighted to see that. Um, the form that this revolution takes form in is a worker strike. Um, essentially, in book five, Victoire and Robin take over Babel and basically institute a work stoppage. And it's oddly fitting seeing um, that Babel is a HarperCollins book. Um, and the publishers of HarperCollins are currently also on strike. Um, although the stakes aren't as, as dire as global war, but... At the same time, it is a strike against um, rampant capitalism, which um, the book and real life share. I, it's really funny that we're. Um, th- it, it was really ironic reading this book during the HarperCollins uh, strike because HarperCollins reached out to the union recently and said, "Okay, we'll negotiate." But right after this, the news of them doing layoffs came up. <laughs> They're going to cut five percent of their current workforce. And it's like, oh, so you're pretty much threatening us saying, yeah, like, we'll come to the negotiation table. But like, don't you feel bad for your coworkers? Like, you know, <laughs> was it worth your coworkers jobs? And it's like, couldn't you have just taken 5% of the CEO's pays? Like, I mean, it's, it's just like mind boggling to me because like HarperCollins, 
like last year made like record profits. <laughs> and I'm like, you can't afford to like, don't tell me that you need to cut corners when most of your staff is on strike. Like you're not losing money in in a way where you have to do layoffs. So this kind of tactic reminded like the, the tactics that the Empire used against the Babel strikers really reminded me of how union busting happens in real life. Yeah. I mean, the British Empire, I mean, did we expect anything less? No, no, we don't. <laughs> but the first the first step in um union busting is to dehumanize the union uh as much as possible. And for Babel, you know, they to a certain extent they're seen as British because they work for the British Empire, but as soon as they become an inconvenience, they are labeled as foreigners. Yeah, so um, Robin Victoire decide that their best option now to um, get their demands met, which is a um, no vote on the um, decision to go to war with China, is to take over the Tower of Babel, which was an option that Griffin floated originally, um, but was voted down because it involved violence. And uh, Robin seems to have subscribed to his brother's um, worldview that you have to use a little force to um, to get your way uh, when you're dealing with empire and that it would actually be pretty easy to take over the tower because like they're not expecting it and it actually turned out to be that way they kind of just walk through the front door and um gets up in front of everyone and makes a speech appealing to um their morality and their ethics and what their intentions are and allowing everyone who wants to leave who doesn't believe in their cause to leave unharmed and they do run into a little bit of resistance uh, specifically from Professor Playfair, um, who rallies some of the, um, I guess, more white students um, to resist. And Arv <laughs> um, Kwan writes some pretty good action scenes. If you read The Poppy War, like there's lots of great martial arts magic action in there. But the way that she wrote this specific fight scene between scholars who don't know how to fight was hilarious. Yeah, I mean, the whole... When Robin and Victoire were strategizing, like, what do we do? Like, how are we going to, like, convince them to join the strike? Robin is like, they're scholars. We just show up with a gun and people are going to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I love the description of the fight with the scholars because um, it was so inelegant. Like, my favorite line was um, how one of the scholars um, threw a punch at Robin in a way that seems to uh, suggest that he only knew how to throw a punch in theory. <laughs> and just imagine this fight scene. And like, if ever, if anyone ever adapts Babel into a film or TV series, this needs to be the most like, they need to shoot this fight scene like that Matrix lobby scene. Oh, with like the slow-mo? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like with all the action just being terrible because no one knows how to throw a punch. Yeah, but like Professor Playfair, he, you know, he's just like, like, you guys are ungrateful, blah, blah, blah. Like the same spiel that (laughs) Professor Lovell has like thrown at us uh, a couple times. And then when Robin says, oh, we found papers, we have evidence that Babel has been, you know, complicit in creating a pretext for a war so that the opium, um, so that the British Empire can pretty much pillage china and this is when professor playfair cracks and he's like yeah but like we're we're the british empire like we're the superior race like we deserve all this stuff 
And that's when, like, all of the Babel students of color are just like, oh, shit. Like, (laughs) (laughs) oh, shit. Like, he's a terrible person. Maybe translating for the British Empire is not what I want to do with my life. (laughs) Well, I mean, I feel like this is the point where, because we've seen throughout the story that all students of color at Babel have similar backgrounds. Like, they're plucked from their families and groomed to enter Babel as translators, uh, essentially becoming a resource for the British Empire um, to create better silver bars and for for silverworking. So we know that this struggle that like all of our cohort besides Letty have dealt with their entire lives, um, Victoire, um, Rami, and Robin, those probably exist in every single student there that went through the same thing and are, are there as a result of colonization. And so... I think, much like Rami and Victoire, they've been waiting for a reason to resist. And so it, it made sense that all the students of color were the ones that remained because they're the ones that probably have already been wrestling with this duality of their existences for for years and years and years. Um, what I found really interesting was one of the other professors that stays is Professor Kraft, who yeah. is essentially like someone who was probably a Letty growing up, right? Someone who has to deal with misogyny and patriarchy your entire life, like not being offered tenure, not being offered the promotion. But when it comes down to it, she decides to put her own life and career on the line to resist. And in a way, she shows us what we had hoped Letty would turn out to be, right? An example of someone who's yeah. willing to be a true ally. I thought it was really funny because Professor Croft is... Uh the professor that Letty approaches in their first year being like, oh, you're like one of the very few, you're like the only woman professor at Babel. Like, you know, can you like mentor me? Can you tell me like what, uh, like give me advice as like a woman student in a, in a mostly white male society. And Professor Croft is like, it's a meritocracy. Just have to work hard. (laughs) And, yeah. And to see her like, you know, reflect on her white woman privilege and to put her life and career on the line, you're just like, okay, there is hope for redemption. <laughs> yeah, there's hope for, for redemption for um a seasoned girl boss, right? Yes, yes. Um and then and we also learned that Professor Chakavarti, who is one of the um only like senior professors of color at Babel, is also part of Ermes, which um, I had suspected, right? Like throughout the story, I was like, "There's no way this like Indian professor is like bought into yeah. like, serving imperial goals." But yeah, so their plan is to institute a work stoppage for Babel uh, because um, the British Empire in this world runs on silver working to power everything from sewage to traffic to safety. Um, And so by putting a halt on all maintenance for silver working, um, their hope is to bring the infrastructure of um, London and England to a standstill, um, whereby the um, powers that be will have to negotiate with them. And their strike uh, gains a lot of supporters. It gains support amongst other strikers. Uh, We see the uh, strikers from the textile industry. They they help. And you see suffragettes and a bunch of other marginalized groups who are like, 
yeah, like they don't un- they don't really care about China, but they do understand how silver has been used to minimize them as yeah. human beings. They understand that if the war in China is allowed to go on, that means that the engine of capitalism will only grow, which will only result in even more income inequality, even more jobs being lost, and more um, economic and social pain for the working class. And I thought it was really cool to see solidarity between like different essentially unions at this point, right? Like there's a really great footnote that RF Kwan includes in the section um, explaining that even though they've been portrayed as like thuggish rogues, the unions and organizations behind previous strikes are well organized. And many of them are made up of people who understand how to uh, withstand sieges. And since a lot of them were war veterans from like the Napoleonic Wars. And it was cool to see the collaborating strikers come in and help um, the Babel strikers um, kind of shore up their defenses, um, create supply lines, and help them create the conditions to help them sustain um, their strike. Since key to the work stoppage is to make sure it goes on as long as possible to inflict um, maximum economic and um, social pain to to the government. Yeah, I mean... It just goes to show that like solidarity, it's all it's all interconnected. Injustices like injustice here is gonna be injustice anywhere. And like we see we've seen this in real life where marginalized groups they do support each other, like Black Lives Matter. Uh their protesters have showed up for the Atlanta spa shootings, uh, victims and their families. We've seen uh Palestinians stand with uh the Ferguson protesters. So it Solidarity is something that is really interconnected, and um, we see the importance of it. And it's, and I thought it was really clever for Rebecca to bring in Abel, who was like the spokesman for the textile industry uh, strike, and he was like the same person who like threw egg at Victoire, I think. And it's like, oh, you thought that we were brutes, but we're actually we just wanted to be seen. Like this is what our strike was about. And it's when it's when the babblers like understand like, okay, like it wasn't just about them being lazy and wanting their jobs without doing anything. Like this was a smear campaign that was run by the government and they're doing the same thing to us. Yeah. And now that the babblers are, you know, part of the strike, a part of the the resistance, um, it becomes a little bit harder for them to justify, you know, the way their lives had been and the things they told themselves to make it easier to participate in, you know, the activity of empire. And it also opens their eyes to the reality of resistance. And um, I, I really liked how, like, this last act of Babel really takes you into, like, the mechanics of a strike. And, you know, the reader learns along with the babblers that there are underlying conditions that lead to someone to want to strike, right? For someone to determine that this is the only way that we can get our point across, right? Because the point of a strike is to withhold labor, to withhold your resources, to prove to the people in power that they need you in order for them to operate. And for the babblers, that is withholding silver working services. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting to see like how much London and Oxford especially relied on silver work. And the consequences are pretty are pretty dire, right? Like people like people die because of 
what they're doing, like buildings collapse, um, carriages run off the road. Yeah, and then this is something that creates tension between Robin and Victoire, because Robin is now all at this point, the world deserves to burn, and sure, I kind of want like, I kind of want the strike to go on so that I can, like, destroy everything. And Victoire is like, that is not, <laughs> that is not why we're doing this strike. Yeah, Robin becomes a full-on Arv Kwan protagonist at this point. Like, he becomes Rin from the Poppy War. Just a person with an unsatiable rage and, like, nihilistic desire to see the world burn and maybe even burn with it. I mean, like, the whole martyr the martyr syndrome like robin has had it from like the very beginning it was like a way for him to clear his conscience by sacrificing himself um but now that he has now that he has nothing to lose pretty much he's like i'm just gonna set everything on fire and you know victoire and some of the other babblers they're very concerned because they're like people are dying like you can't use this strike as like personal vengeance like we're trying to make uh, we're trying to make a point we're trying to stop a war how much violence do we actually need like how like where is the line where it's like necessary violence and terrorism so that is a that is a tension that we see yeah but at the same time we're also seeing that even with all the chaos even even with all the material and physical destruction no progress is being made by the people in power like there's still debates being held but there's nothing's being done except like all right we're gonna send the troops now um and i think that's something that both frustrates robin but also like excites him right because because he's realizing that the people in power don't care but this will allow him to further his own like nihilistic tendencies yeah and their trump card is the westminster bridge so they find out that the Westminster Bridge needs to have its regular maintenance with silver work. Otherwise, the bridge is going to collapse. And a lot of most of the traffic goes through that bridge. So they're like, surely, you know, once the bridge falls, the government will vote no on the war with China. Like, like they'll see how much we're needed and... When it comes to destruction, um, that doesn't happen. The the government doesn't do anything except for sending more troops. Yeah, and the fallout of the Westminster Bridge falling really demoralizes the strikers, right? They start questioning whether they're doing the right thing, whether it's even worth it, especially as the siege, you know, persists and the damage keeps piling up. And I think this is where there's a really great quote um, about how the empire um, kind of manipulates public opinions on resistance. Um, Yeah, there's this quote in the book that says, this is how colonialism works. It convinces us that the fallout from resistance is entirely our fault, that the immoral choice is resistance itself rather than the circumstances that demanded it. So in this case, you know, people might be blaming them for all the deaths that have occurred because, you know, they've withhold their silver tinkering. And I think, you know, Robin being in his full, like, like revolutionary mode right now is like saying, no, it's not our fault. They're the ones, they could have stopped this at any time. They're the ones choosing not to. And it's, I mean, Robin is an Arv Kwan protagonist and an Arv Kwan protagonist is 
usually, based on my experience, kind of morally compromised. Like they may have just motivations and worldviews, but their methods are often, um, let's say, questionable. And I think this is a theme that this book is really exploring is what is the necessity of violence in revolution and what is your line with it? Like, are you with Robin or are you with Victoire? Yeah, like how far are you willing to go to stand your ground? And, you know, like after the bridge collapses, uh, we see the return of Letty. Uh, Letty comes with the white flag and she pleads with them to surrender because she says the army is coming. They're going to raid the tower at dawn. Like, if you surrender now, you'll actually get to live. You'll still be able to translate. And she doesn't understand why they have done all of this. And it's like, like we've tried to tell you throughout this entire book, like why we're doing this, why we feel like um, the, the empire is bad. Yeah, I mean, at this point, Letty is fully bought in, right? She is... The possibility, the hope that Letty, as someone who can come around and understand things from their point of view, is now fully closed off. Um, because, like, because of many reasons, a chiefly because she murdered Rami, and b, like, because of her white fragility and her pride as an English person, she can't admit that she was wrong. For Robin and Victoire to succeed means for her to admit that her views are wrong, that she made a mistake. And she can't be wrong because if she's wrong here, what else could she be guilty of? And Letty also tells them, you know, like the British, they don't care. They care, what they care most of all is their national pride. And their national pride was wounded when China said no to their trade negotiations. So of course they're going to go to war with China. Like that's just the set, that's just... Yeah, You know, them standing up for their honor and British people don't care about anything else more than that. Yeah, their nationalistic pride won't allow that. This conversation is also when um, Letty and Robin share their final barbs at each other regarding Rami's death, where uh, Robin confronts her and asks her why she did it. And she shoots Robin's words from when he killed Professor Lovell right back at him, saying that she doesn't know how it happened. It just did. And this might be the first time that Robin admits to his own culpability when he responds to that, uh, you know, that's not how it works. And I just like how this is like the final nail in the coffin of this um, this friendship. And that no matter what happens, there's no coming back from this. So they're told that the army is going to raid the tower at dawn. And the other strikers who have been helping the Babel students, they say, hey, this is the end of the road. Like, we've been through this before. Like, there is no other... there." There's no other moves you can make. And Robin, who has just kind of like spiraled to his like most destructive state, says, I'm going to blow up the tower and take all of the silver with me. At least it's going to cripple the British Empire and make their future like it's going to take them time to rebuild all of their silver working. At least it will make an impact. I mean, that's his reason. Like, yeah. Robin knows that he's going to go down with the tower no matter what. He has kind of hoped for this outcome in order to, like, you know, this this is one way I can, like, permanently uh, damage the British Empire. I don't even think he wants to damage the British Empire, though. I think he, he just wants to atone. 
right? He thinks this is his way of atoning to all the people that he let down because, you know, he confesses that like Rami and Griffin were better people than he was. Like they had more conviction and they were the ones to die. And so like there's this, before even going in and making the decision, him and Victoire have like this heart to heart, right? And we get kind of this dual sides of resistance, right? Is resistance fighting to the bitter end or is, is resistance living to fight another day? And, you know, Victoire and Robin kind of represent two sides of this this philosophy. And what did you think about, like, kind of, is either side more brave than the other? I mean, there are two sides of the same coin, really. Um, yeah, I, like, I don't know. Like, Victoire, like, for her, she's like, my death is just going to be used as ammunition for white people to, you know, feel better about themselves like she she's like why i don't want to be dead in order for me to be seen as human so for her it's like i'd rather be selfish and you know live because that's living is a form of resistance for her whereas like with robin he's like i don't see the point (laughs) like if i can't like if this is the biggest statement that i can make then so be it so I don't know. Um, I don't know if one is more right than the other. I think it really depends on the person. So I don't know. And, you know, the sad thing is, like, these two young people with, like, who should have had, like, the world at their fingertips, who should have had, like, a bright and happy future as scholars doing what they want to do, they're not allowed to because of colonialism, because of imperialism. They're, they are where they are at this point because of all the dehumanizing that they've gone through. And it's sad that they're at this point at all, right? Yeah, and it's also a question of like how they're going to be remembered in history or if they're just going to be another footnote. And one of the babblers, I think he's like a first year, he you know, he he takes the initiative to like write everything down, to interview people and to ask them like why they're doing this so that in the future their own words will be able to speak uh, for their actions rather than it being co-opted by by the government. Yeah, I think it was Yusuf, which I think he was a post-grad in legal. Yeah, so like it comes to a vote. Like Robin says like, hey, like I'm going to take this tower, tower down with me, but I can't do it by myself. Like I need other people to work on the silver bars to to explode. And he asks for volunteers. And in the end, the only two people who decide to leave the tower is Victoire and Yusuf. Yeah, I was actually pretty surprised that Professor Kraft decided to stay because if any of them had a chance to like make it out, it was probably her, right? As like the the white woman. Yeah, but it just, you know, she she was the epitome of an ally, I guess, at, at the very end. <laughs> <laughs> Pour one out for Professor Kraft, one of the real ones. And, you know, the book ends with them activating the silver bars, um, letting it self-destruct and bring their own tower down onto them. And I think it was pretty poignant at the end for Robert to see a vision of his mother, who, you know, we never meet because she dies before the book begins. And it ends with her saying, like, his name, which we never learn throughout the entire story what his actual name is. Yeah, and, you know, he... Uh, like I forgot what the exact line was, but he says that death feels familiar to him because he had already confronted it before. 
when he was like facing the cholera um, symptoms at the beginning of the chapter. So for him, it just felt like closure. And I don't know about the other characters. I don't know about the other babblers if they went through the same experience because it seemed like a lot of them were terrified, but they still stood by and did did the mission that uh, they were assigned. So yeah. yeah, it is tragic. Yeah, like how did you feel about the way that the book concluded Robin's story? Uh, I thought it was fitting. I know one of the main criticisms that a lot of readers had was that Robin's character arc went too fast. He went from like spineless and, uh, you know, not committed to the cause to super committed and like let let's burn everything revolutionary and i don't know i thought the the speed was okay because what he went through in book three four and five with killing his birth father and watching his friend get killed i think those are really you know big catalysts for him to become this revolutionary. So yeah, I don't even think it's that. I feel like he always had like this simmering like discomfort that what he was doing was something that he shouldn't be doing. And at first it was like he couldn't believe that this he was able to enjoy his privileges and later on it's his guilt that he was able to enjoy these privileges over people who couldn't. And I think throughout the story he's always had like this imposter syndrome, right? Like this idea that he might not deserve everything that he's getting, um, even while enjoying the privileges of being a scholar in Oxford and at Babel. And even throughout book five, throughout the strike, he keeps channeling, like he is constantly channeling Griffin and Rami and everything he does. I don't know if it's like he turned into a revolutionary as much as like he became one in place of his brother and in place of Rami. Yeah. I mean, like the criticisms that I've read from other reviewers is that, you know, they're like, oh, it just seemed like he turned into a different person. And to me, I'm like, he was always the same person. This was always going to be his path. So like, to me, it just seemed, it just seemed natural to me. Yeah. I mean, he always had that, that fire within him, right? That anger. And, you know, it's just, it's the one thing that he shares with his brother and with his father, um, like we mentioned. And um, I think I think it was really smart to give us both like flavors of protagonists, right? The one that the one that lives to fight again, and the one that gives it all up. Um, because then we can ask ourselves if we were put in that position, where would we fall, right? And I like that also how the book doesn't villainize Victoire for wanting to survive. And you know we're, we're treated with an epilogue, which is Victoire's intermission, where we learn about what she had to go through to get to where she is. And how for her surviving is how she how she resists the plan the world has for her. Yeah, reading her interlude uh, gave a lot of insight as to like w- why she is so committed to the cause. It's not just because she is a black woman. It's because you know she came from Haiti, which was you know like the first black republic, and um, when she moved to France, like she was treated like a servant. And for her, it's like there was no other option than to continue living, to continue to find opportunities to um, better her life. So 
to just give up didn't really seem in character for her. Yeah. You know, part of me wishes that the story ends with like another epilogue telling us the aftermath of the translator's revolution. Um, But I also like that they kept it open-ended. I think it's easy to think cynically that in the end, all they managed to do was just be an annoyance to the British Empire. But at the same time, like, you know, this is an alternate world um, in a world where the opium wars didn't happen because um, um, England lost their power source. What would the world look like um, if China never lost Hong Kong, if the Qing Empire wasn't weakened by their war with uh, England? There probably still would have been a revolution. Um, but how different like the maps would be if the if the British Empire was taken down a peg at the height of its power? Because the Victorian era was the height of its like imperial worldwide power, right? Yeah, we still see how the hooks of colonialism and imperialism last today. So it is a question of like how long the effects will last in this world of of England and the British Empire. Yeah. So I do I do like the fact that Rebecca left that uh, open ended. And yeah, I guess that brings us to the end of Babel. Um, what a book! What a what a book! Yeah. But yeah, let's um let's take some listener feedback because we had a couple comments uh, for the book as well. Um, Lauren on Goodreads says, um, I finished reading the book this morning and I'm so glad that my initial first impressions about it were proven wrong. I recall the hype when the book first came out last summer, but on a surface level, it didn't come off as overly interesting. I also thought initially that Robin Swift was a white guy. This is the latest novel of Arv Kwong, so I should have known better on all of that. The world building is impressive, the stakes are high, and the characters are well-developed. Uh, well, regarding the latter, for the most part, it took such a long time for Rob to morph beyond being a studious peacekeeper, longer than I think it was necessary. It's because of his slow evolution as a character that the majority of the novel felt like a very long first act. It really isn't until well past the halfway point that things start to take a turn on a narrative level. I think that aspect of the story could have been paced better than it was. But otherwise, I'm glad I closed off 2022 and kicked off 2023 with this novel. It's been a hot minute since I've read something as engaging as this. Leave it to Arv Kwong if you want a story that gets deep and dark. Um, we did touch a little bit about the pacing, and I can see why some people thought like the first half of the book was slowly paced because it is like compared to the last half where it was just balls to the wall, action and death and destruction it was pretty chill, uh, but I feel like as someone who read The Poppy War, like I was more than willing to live in the peaceful half of the world uh, for as long as I could before everything went dark. Because once we get to um, post-murder, it's pretty bleak throughout, right? The, 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 the openings of like a happy ending start closing for our characters. Yeah, and I think... The first half of the book, like the reason why there is so much setup is because you're creating this brand new world for your readers and you have to explain all the rules. And, you know, I really enjoyed spending my time in Oxford with uh, Robin, Rami, Letty and Victoire. I feel like I really got to bond with them as a reader and it just made like their endings so much more tragic, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, and um, and it's also reflective of like how we look back on like our younger days, our our college days, where our worries were so, you know, 
minuscule. We didn't have to worry about life. We only had to worry about making it through exams. And I feel like that nostalgia, uh, it matched the pacing, I think. <laughs> it is. That's true. Like it, it really does read like a slow golden time. And it just gets dashed in the, <laughs> in the second half of the book. That's true. Like in book five, while Robin is reminiscing about his days hanging out with Rami while under siege, I was like, yeah, that did happen. Those were good times back like 400 pages ago when they didn't have to worry about... <laughs> 400 pages ago. <laughs> oh. And I think Robin's character is meant to be frustrating at first because us as people who want to see him be more heroic, want to see him take more of a stand. It is frustrating to see a guy who could do something but chooses not to because of fear. Um, but again, I mean, that's in character for a lot of us, right? I feel like in terms of being a revolutionary, it's hard to commit until the struggle becomes real. And the struggle doesn't become real for Robin until Rami dies and Griffin dies, right? I, I don't even think it becomes real after he kills his father, right? When his... Yeah, when yeah. he kills his father, because it's always like, it's like, well, he's like, I can still get away with murder, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I'm still useful to the Empire. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it doesn't become real to him until his friends are in danger. I feel like if you read this book a second time, you're going to read those good times in the first act <laughs> and want to kind of bask yourself in it. Because <laughs> yeah. you know what's what's coming. Yeah. Uh, we also have a comment from Nina who said that they couldn't put the book down for the later half themes around exceptionalism slash model of minority, working with the system versus bringing the system down. The contradiction of minorities oppressing other minorities to maintain their worldview were all apparent and explored in a way that I found very engaging. The ending of the story really brought tears to my eyes. The idea of the sacrifices that minorities have to make in order to demonstrate their humanity and prove that they are equal is truly unreasonable and unbearable. Yes, I feel like we tackled most of the themes <laughs> in this book. Um, and yeah, it's it. I asked this question in the first uh, in the first half of our Babel discussion, but who is this book for? <laughs> and really, like as readers of color, a lot of things are obvious. A lot of things are things that we've lived with, and I'm guessing for a lot of white readers, it's going to make them reflect on things that they haven't done before and really ask a lot of uncomfortable questions. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I think this book is for everybody. Whether or not you've learned about the effects of empire, of colonialism or not, this book arms you with the knowledge and the talking points to engage in those conversations and you know your own place in um, the world. Because as much as this book is anti-imperial, it's also anti-capitalist, right? Because the backbone of any empire was and still is economical. And that's true for America as well. Yeah. Well, that was our discussion of Babel. If you have made it to the end of this episode, I applaud you. Oh my goodness, you guys are a trooper. Um, if you have any other thoughts about the book that we may have missed or you have any comments on our discussion um, please let us know on our goodreads forums um, we always love to hear what you think about our discussion and our episodes as well um but yeah let's let's get out of here arira uh, um what are we reading for the month of february 
for the month of February, we are reading The Charmed List by Julie Abe. Um, I think this is a pretty good palate cleanser for this month, uh, especially since Valentine's Day is only a few weeks away. And we've had Julie Abe on the show before. This is her first YA novel, and it's pretty much about a Japanese-American teen witch who goes to a magical convention with an enemy. So it's kind of like an enemies to lovers situation in a realistic magical world. So we are still sticking to to the realms of magic. So I'm excited to read this because it is only 300 pages and <laughs> definitely a lot easier to read than Babel. Yeah, I'm excited to get into this. Um, Julie Abe is a former um, guest of our show. We had an author chat with her for her first book. And as I understand it, this book has a direct reference to our podcast. Yes, our first book cameo. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> All right. Well, looking forward to reading that with you, Rira. And on that note, let's um, let's wrap it up. Uh, thank you so much for listening to our discussion of our January 2023 book club pick, Babel by R.F. Kuang. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Sharon. Hey, Raman. How are folks still racist? I know, right? We're like two decades into the 21st century. Yeah. And second question, where's my jetpack? Well, I can't help you there, but have I got a podcast for you. Modern Minorities is a show where each week, my longtime pal Raman and I uncover common and uncommon truths that we all need to hear for our majority brains and ears. Yeah, Sharon and I have spoken to doctors, lawyers, directors, climate activists, angry Asians, athletes, chefs, writers. Folks who are black, brown, gay, straight, and everything in between. Past guests have included comedian Margaret Cho, Southern Poverty Law Center journalist Geraldine Mariba, comics creator Jean Lun Yang, and many, many more. We've even talked about Ramadan, Black History Month, Kamala Khan, and Robin being queer. It's like we're trying to solve racism with the podcast. Challenge accepted. So check out Modern Minorities at modmypod.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Remember, we're all modern minorities, but we're no one's model minority. Modern Minorities.